Okay, good morning, everyone. Good to see you today. Today we are beginning uh, in our series in Matthew, the Sermon on the Mount, which is Matthew 5, 6, and 7. It's arguably the best known and the least practiced of all the teachings of Jesus. Even non-Christians will often say they desire to live by the teachings of the Sermon on the Mount. Gandhi, almost a century ago, as one example, loved to quote Jesus' teaching here as a part of his call for nonviolent resistance in India, even though Gandhi, his entire life, was a Hindu. Uh, Tupac Shakur, slightly less famously, has a famous song, Only God Can Judge Me, from Matthew chapter 7, verse 1. Um, the 20th century novelist Kurt Vonnegut said this actually in a speech that he gave in the late 1960s. Listen to what Vonnegut said. He says, quote, some of you may know that I am neither Christian nor Jewish nor Buddhist nor a conventionally religious person of any sort. I am a humanist, he writes, he said, which means in part that I have tried to behave decently without any expectation of rewards and punishments after I'm dead. But if it weren't for the message of mercy and pity in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, I wouldn't want to be a human being. I would just as soon be a rattlesnake. It's without question, the Sermon on the Mount, one of the most famous speeches or collections of teaching ever given. And in our next probably 10 weeks or so, we're going to walk through these chapters as we continue our study of Matthew's gospel. So where are we? Jesus has begun his ministry. We saw that last week in the end of chapter 4, Matthew records that Jesus began to preach about the coming of the kingdom. And and he began to call a community of disciples around his teaching. And he began to heal the sick. And we've already seen in so many ways in Matthew, Jesus to be an extraordinary person. Um, Just the first four chapters give us these titles for Jesus. Messiah, son of David, son of Abraham, God saves, God with us, shepherd, Nazarene, baptizer with the Holy Spirit and fire, the Father's beloved Son, the light of the nations. So with all that we've already learned about Jesus, Matthew at this point wants us thinking, I can't wait to hear what this man says. So Matthew gives us a long summary of some of Jesus' preaching and teaching. And the sermon begins with these statements that Luke just read, known as the Beatitudes. We're going to cover all of them today. If you want more detail, by the way, uh, we did an entire sermon series just on the Beatitudes in the summer of 2022. You can find those on the website if you're interested in hearing more. And as we look at these Beatitudes, it's very easy to notice that there's a pattern to them, right? Um, All of the Beatitudes start with the word blessed. In Greek, that's the word makarios, makarios, which is a notoriously difficult word to translate. It could mean, and kind of does mean, it's it's actually a salutation. It means congratulations. So if something wonderful has happened to you, if you've just gotten a new job, or if you've just had a child, someone would come to you and say, makarios, congratulations, blessed are you. It also can be translated happy, happy are you. 
And I actually like that translation, happy, because that's a word that is just common in our way of speaking, more common anyway, I think, than the word blessed. Uh, I think that's a fine translation. The only confusion to avoid in thinking of the Beatitudes as statements about happiness is, is this. Jesus is not in any of these Beatitudes referring primarily to our subjective state. In other words, when he says, happy are those who mourn, he's not trying to pull a Jedi mind trick on you and say, you're not looking for that droid, right? He's not trying to say, even though you feel sad, you're really happy, Jedi mind trick. That's not what Jesus is doing here. He's rather making an objective judgment. He's saying what God thinks of these sorts of people, that they are blessed, they're favored by him. So each beatitude begins with the word makarios, blessed, happy are these. And then each beatitude ends with the remarkable promise. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. They shall inherit the earth. They shall see God and so on and so on. Now there's various ways that you could reasonably break down the Beatitudes and group them. Uh, what I'm going to do is divide them into two parts today. The first four Beatitudes are what I'm calling Beatitudes of Lack. Beatitudes of Lack. And the last four are Beatitudes of Love. The first four Beatitudes are descriptions of who the kingdom of God is for And the last four are descriptions of what the people of the kingdom of God are like. And so let's divide them up that way and look at these verses for a couple of minutes as Jesus, through the Holy Spirit, speaks to us. First, let's look at the Beatitudes of lack, who the kingdom of God is for. The first four Beatitudes, look with me there, they all describe people in various states of neediness. They are about people who suffer from some deprivation. Jesus says, it's these people, needy, hopeless, hurting people that are blessed by God. So, very importantly, the Sermon on the Mountain does not begin with what God demands. There will be plenty of that later on. It begins with blessing. It begins with grace, not orders. It begins with mercy, not commandments. So let's look at these beatitudes. The first one is the most important and in a way is a summary of all the others. You see it in verse three. Blessed, Jesus says, are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Jesus is saying that God is happy with people who acknowledge their own spiritual poverty, who can name their own inner bankruptcy. People who have nothing and people who are nothing are the people that God congratulates through Jesus. The word poor means materially poor. It means people who are dependent upon someone else to make it. People on welfare, the welfare poor. Jesus is saying, the kingdom is for those of you who are in a spiritual crisis. 
It's for those of you who are on the way down. It's for those of you who are feeling your helplessness. Now, as with all the Beatitudes, this is radically countercultural, isn't it? Um, even for those of us who are Christians. In fact, it seems on the surface that to be a person of God by definition is to be full of spirit, not poor in spirit. I want you to feel the paradox here. Jesus sides with those who fail. And Jesus sides with those who feel their failure. Jesus blesses the spiritually inadequate. So much of the Sermon on the Mount is like this. Jesus, again and again, is going to bang it home that it is those of us who feel their sin and their need and their hurt who are really righteous. And it is those who are sure they are righteous and need no repentance who are really sinners. Listen, if you've ever hit rock bottom, then the kingdom is for you. And it's for you just in that moment. In fact, it's only then that you can get into the kingdom. Has that happened for you? Have you hit rock bottom? Is it deep suffering for you? Is it heartbreak? Is it just a catastrophic event has completely wrecked your life? Is it a massive moral failure that people know about? You see, it's these events of life, my friends, painful though they are, that are significant graces of God because they're bringing you to the end of your rope. (laughs) Uh, They're showing you that You're like someone hanging on a ledge by your fingernails, trying to pull yourself up. And it's when you hit rock bottom that you realize, I can't pull myself up anymore. I'm going to have to let go. I'm not strong enough. There's a a park in Salida, Colorado, right along the Arkansas River that my family and I go to every summer. And we love this park. It's a beautiful place. And in this park, there's a small little rock wall that people can climb. And every summer, yes, all five of the Evans try to climb this rock wall. And every summer I do worse. I do worse and worse each summer, feeling my age. And uh, this summer we were there and I remember having my hands on the rock wall and just trying to get halfway up, not even to the top, feeling like There's zero chance here, but I've got to keep trying. I've got to keep trying. I've got to reach up. I've got to hold on. I've got to strengthen my fingers. My goodness, this is terrible how weak I am. It's it's in the moment when we realize I cannot do this. I cannot climb any higher. I cannot hold on. I've got to let go that you're acknowledging your own spiritual poverty. And conversely, if you're unwilling to let go, if you never hit the bottom, if you're still trying to hold yourself and others together, if you're still thinking about self-sufficiency, you cannot enter the kingdom. It's only for those who have nothing to give. Which are you? Secondly, Jesus tells us, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Mourning is the expression of deep sorrow. 
It's the expression of bereavement. And it was really interesting to me studying this this week, how many commentators and preachers, especially older commentators and preachers, try to manipulate what Jesus is saying here, frankly. They'll say, Jesus is saying, blessed are those who mourn over their sin. Blessed are those, they try to spiritualize it. Blessed are those who feel repentant. That's not what Jesus is saying. He says, blessed are sad people. Blessed are you when you're depressed. Blessed are you when you're despondent. God congratulates the sad. And he's not saying, again, that the sad are really happy on the inside. That's ridiculous. He's saying that the kingdom is for the hurting and the depressed. That's why this beatitude is so counterintuitive as well. We expect Jesus to say, don't we? Uh, Blessed are those who are full of joy. Blessed are the happy. Happy are the happy. That seems like who God would favor. Those who are happy in his world, those who are enjoying his life, those are the people we want to be around, after all. Those are the people that we want to be like. Those are the people that get invited to all the parties. But once again, Jesus throttles our expectations. Blessed are those, he says, who experience pain and grieve it. Blessed are those who have lost someone and wondering where God is. It is not unchristian, listen to me, nor is it a sign of regression in your Christian walk to be sad. The American evangelical church is horrible at this. And we have implicitly told people that being sad must mean there's something wrong with your faith. We don't like the bereaved. We sing very few songs for the mourning. That makes us uncomfortable. To prove that to myself, this week I went to google.com. You ever heard of that website? And um, I googled most popular sermon series. And uh, this is not a lie. Here were the top five. Number one, how to experience financial freedom. Number two, I would actually like to hear that series. Uh, Number two, raising world changers. I I don't know what that means. Number three, how to be healthy. Number four, how to make the right decision. And number five, this is not a lie, how to be happier. We still don't really want to listen to Jesus. The kingdom is for those who lack and perhaps always will. Jesus came to comfort those who know and have experienced how hard life can be. Do you want to know Jesus' love? Well, you have to go through some sadness first. Blessed are those who mourn. Third, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. The meek are the little people. The meek are the powerless. The meek are those who make no claims for themselves before God or anyone else. The meek can also be those who might not be disadvantaged materially, but whose attitudes are not arrogant or oppressive. Again, Jesus is saying here that the minimum bar to be enfolded into his love is simply this. Open yourself up to him in all of your need. It's all he needs. Indeed, it's the only thing he works with. You don't need to unburden yourself or collect yourself before you come to Jesus. Your very burden is what qualifies you to come. No payment is required. Jesus calls himself gentle, meek, and lowly and that he will give us rest. Fourth, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied, verse 6. Remember, this too is a beatitude of lack. 
Jesus is saying that those who will be satisfied are those who want, are those who long for, are those who deeply desire righteousness, but who don't have it, or at least not enough of it, not as much of it as they would want. That word righteousness in Matthew, we've seen it a couple of times already. In Matthew, it really just means to do the right thing. That's what righteousness means in Matthew. So Jesus is doing a couple of things here. For one, he's saying, you're going to be satisfied one day if you hunger and thirst for more righteousness in your life. He is saying that. That's poverty of spirit. If you look at your life and if you think, I am a mess. Anybody ever thought that? Have any of you ever looked at your life and thought, my gosh, I cannot get my, you know what, together. My life is a disaster. That's exactly what Jesus wants. That's exactly who he blesses. That's hungering and thirsting for something that you know you don't have very much of. Namely, righteousness. The the great medieval mystic, Teresa of Avila, summarized, I think, what Jesus is saying. Listen to what she said. I do not love you, Lord. I do not even want to love you. But I want to want to love you. Do any of you ever feel like that? Be honest. That's hungering and thirsting for righteousness. But there's also a communal element to this beatitude. It's about those who want more righteousness than they have, but it's also about those who want more righteousness and justice in the world, who look around and long for the world to be made right, who crave justice but can't seem to get it in this life. They're also hungry and thirsting for righteousness, which God blesses. Again, listen, the main point of these beatitudes of lack is that the only requirement for entering God's kingdom and coming under his gracious rule is inadequacy, is neediness, is poverty. This is who God loves and blesses. This is who Jesus came for, crippled, brokenhearted, forgotten failures. If you find yourself in that boat, congratulations. Secondly, beatitudes of love. Jesus has told us, who the kingdom is for, and now he tells us what the kingdom is like. Look at what he tells us first. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Congratulations to you if you're committed to living in the way of mercy. The merciful are people who have a heart. That's the merciful. It's those who know that God has shown them great mercy in Jesus Christ. And because they know that, they also, in turn, want to show mercy to others too. John Calvin said that the merciful are, quote, those who were not only prepared to put up with their own troubles, but who also take on other people's troubles. And Christ says that those who show mercy will in turn receive mercy. It's a, it's a circle of mercy here. Jesus teaches this all the time, especially in his storytelling ministry. One example is the parable we know as the parable of the unforgiving servant. Remember that one? This man owes 10,000 talents, which is like a zillion dollars, like it's more Bitcoin than exists in the universe. You know, he owes money he can never, ever pay back. And the man to whom he owes this insurmountable debt forgives him, shows him mercy. And the man's leaving the meeting where he's been forgiven. And he runs across this friend who owes him like five bucks. You know, I bought you Starbucks last week. You owe me. And he 
ram, he just lambasts this guy and, and beats this guy and demands that this guy pay him back. He's not showing mercy. He doesn't realize what he has received. Jesus is teaching here that the people of the kingdom of heaven should be characterized by mercy. And the church, as an outpost of the kingdom, can display God's character so beautifully by living into this beatitude. A number of years ago now, when we were serving at a church in Arizona, they, that, that church did this for us. Marianne got very sick and went into the hospital and was in the hospital for a number of weeks. And, and once she got out of the hospital, had to do some intensive physical therapy to recover from her, from her illness. And the entire congregation sprang into action, showing mercy to us. We were given meals. We were given... All things we didn't even know we needed. So much so that the nurses that cared for Marianne mentioned to me more than once, y'all are really well taken care of. Isn't that what the church should be? That's what we want for our church, for our community groups. Jesus is inviting us into following him by showing practical mercy, by taking on other people's troubles in appropriate ways with those he has placed right in front of us here together. Blessed are the merciful. The second beatitude of love, the sixth overall is verse eight. Blessed are the pure in heart for they will see God. Again, we see here, okay? Again, we see here that Jesus loves to bless people in the very core of who they are. Jesus blesses people in the heart, the center Poor in spirit, mourning, powerless, hungering for righteousness, merciful, and now pure in heart. I think that what Jesus is teaching here is that God favors and God loves and God blesses those who in the kingdom strive to live pure lives. That's what he's saying. Soren Kierkegaard, the the Danish philosopher, famously defined purity as to will one thing. To will one thing. Now remember, this is not a condition to get into the kingdom. It's the way of the people already in. And for any of us who have tried to be pure for 24 hours, we know how hard this is, don't we? Maybe it's just me. Do we know how hard this is? This is hard. And and so Jesus is commending here. Those who fight for purity. Those who fight to know and see God which is the most important thing. King David in so many Psalms speaks in this way. One example is, is where he writes, one thing have I asked of the Lord, one thing I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and inquire in his temple. So listen, for those of us who are seeking purity of heart because of God's grace and because of what the Spirit is doing us, God sees that? And God blesses that. You will see God. Keep at it, Jesus is saying. Let me be plain with you. Keep fighting against sexual immorality and pornography. Avoid it. Do not engage in it. And when you fail, confess it and repent and keep at it. For those of us fighting against judgmental and vindictive spirits and attitudes, keep fighting, keep guarding your mouth from saying mean things. 
Keep asking God for forgiveness when you condemn someone internally. For those seeking to know and enjoy God through spiritual practices and formation, keep at it. God will honor your obedience and your faithfulness. You will see him. Seventh, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. You see by now how these last four are similar, I hope. Like with the merciful, the peacemaker is acting in love as they follow the way of Jesus Christ. And peace in the Bible is not just like the negation of violence. It's not the negation of malice. Peace is a positive force. It's shalom, to use that famous Hebrew word. It's a wholeness. It's a fullness of tranquility in life. The theologian Cornelius Plantinga defines it this way. The peace that God is talking about is the webbing together of God, humans, and all creation in justice, fulfillment, and delight. Jesus calls his kingdom people, listen, to be a people of peace. You know what's going to happen in November of 2024? This is an election year, and America is divided, and the church has succumbed to America's divisions and partisanship and hatred too. And the problem with so much of modern society and with so much of the church is that we have common enemy identity politics. We only identify enemies to oppose. We don't have a vision of what we want. We only have a vision of what we're or who we're against. And this leads to dehumanization It leads to demonizing the opposition. What an opportunity this year to be peaceful people. And and let me just tell you, as like kind of a first salvo, we're committed to peace at Christ Church. We're not going to be a place of acrimony and infighting about whatever your issue is or whoever your candidate is. We desire to be peacemakers and we will work for it. Join us. Join us in that. Trump nor Biden can bring the peace that Jesus can. Lastly, blessed are those who are persecuted. I've got more amens there than I've gotten in a long time, by the way. Um, (laughs) Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, verse 10. Jesus rounds it out by making the same promise to the persecuted that he made to the poor in spirit. Living in the way of Jesus will bring persecution and opposition. Jesus, of all the billions of people the world has ever had, is the only man to ever have a perfectly beatific life. And persecution followed him everywhere. It got him killed. And so when we experience rejection or hostility or even awkwardness in relationships or feeling like we're an outsider, that is indicative, Jesus says, of our blessedness, of our being on the right path. What a vision of life, my friends. What a vision for life that Jesus offers us here, so different from the world. Can you imagine with me the world's beatitudes as we wrap it up? It's very easy. Blessed are the rich. Blessed are the carefree, the brash, the well-fed, those who mind their own business and don't meddle in the affairs of others, the successful, even by devious means, 
Blessed are the popular, but not Jesus. He calls us into a better life, a life of faith and love. Will you journey with him? The kingdom of heaven awaits. Let's pray.